0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 19th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Thomas Jefferson, at least in his own time, was both revered and reviled. Robert McDonald is author of the new book, Confounding Father, Thomas Jefferson's Image in His Own Time. McDonald spoke at Cato University in July. Jefferson's elections is something that that I've actually studied a, a good bit. Um, Because of the book that that I've been working on uh, for a while, Um, Tom mentioned it this morning, it's called Confounding Father, um, Thomas Jefferson's Image in His Own Time, and uh, the focus is is what people had to say about Thomas Jefferson, what people perceived about Thomas Jefferson um, between 1776, when I suppose you could say his national public career began, and 1826, when uh, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson finally died up at, up at Monticello, or down at Monticello. And uh, it, it, the, the sort of short story is, some people loved him, other people hated him. To, to some, he was revered. To others, he was reviled. Um, to John Beckley, who uh, wrote one of the first um, kind of campaign biographies in American history. It was a short biography of Thomas Jefferson. Beckley was uh, from Philadelphia. In many respects, he was kind of like Thomas Jefferson's Karl Rove or David Axelrod. Um, you know, Beckley, Beckley described Jefferson um, as the friend and benefactor of the whole human race. And, and yet, Martha Washington described Jefferson as one of the most detestable of mankind. So there was really uh, a a polarity of of opinions on Thomas Jefferson. Um, He was um, maybe more of a divider than a uniter, Um, sometimes uh, through his own fault, sometimes um, for things beyond his control. And so I think when you look at his political career, and when you look, as we will today, at his three presidential elections, 1796, 1800, and 1804, um, you get a sense not only of why is Jefferson such a controversial figure, um, but you also get a sense that in this post-revolutionary era, the rules of politics are changing. In, in this era after the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, we, we could agree, at least many people could agree, on the Constitution and ratifying it. But now it became time to agree exactly what it said and exactly what what that meant. How do you govern under this thing? What is the future of American government? What is the best way to honor and uh, maintain the principles of 1776? We think that was really the source of the controversy, as well as a changing sense of the rules of political engagement. I said a couple of things to uh, some friends with whom I was speaking at lunch. Uh, you know, the question came up, in essence, it was, do I, do I like Thomas Jefferson? And the answer is, yes, I do like Thomas Jefferson. I, I admire him on a, on a number of different levels. Um, I don't think he's infallible. Um, I, I like him enough that I have kind of some fun finding, you know, places where he's inconsistent. Um, times when he acts uh, in one way, but really is acting in another way. Times when he tries to remain visibly above the fray of politics, but then you see him writing to James Madison, and uh, you know after Hamilton writes a particularly obnoxious newspaper article, Jefferson will say, "For God's sakes, you know, pick up your pen and tear him to pieces in the face of the public." You know, so uh, Jefferson was not above uh, calling on others to get down and dirty. Um, As as politics became less deferential and more democratic, um, we could see Jefferson struggling to make sense of these changing rules of political engagement. I think that in many respects, Jefferson is a fine political athlete. And what I mean by that is uh, it's not just his principles that I admire, Um, But I also enjoy watching him as a political participant. Uh, I enjoy watching him trying to make the most of um, the rules as they exist, the rules as they are evolving. Um, We are leaving, of course, the uh, colonial and in many respects deferential and aristocratic um, political culture that defines uh, America up through the middle of the 18th century and we're embarking as we get into the 19th century and a new increasingly democratic political culture. Um, You know, there is the age of Washington when George Washington thought that really there was only one day when the public should speak and that's election day. And otherwise, it was best for members of the public to uh, trust the people whom they had accorded public office, you know, to trust the elected officials to do what they thought was best. That's a very old-fashioned notion. Um, then you have Andrew Jackson, flash forward a couple of decades, and, and this is a man who's traveling around and, you know, uh, standing on soapboxes and giving speeches and making promises and saying, if you vote for me, I'll do this for you. Um, a man who's picking up and kissing babies, who's glad-handing, um, who's, who's actively campaigning his desire um, for the presidency. And, and that, decades earlier, would be seen as utterly unacceptable. I mean, from the standpoint of the mid-18th century, from the standpoint of the revolutionary generation, the very last person to whom you'd want to give power is someone who actually sought power. Somebody who seeks power, wants to use power. And of course, if you're a good American revolutionary, you understand that power is a very dangerous thing, a very frightful thing. George Washington, of course, could be trusted with the presidency because he had already demonstrated that he could be trusted with the power that he was bestowed when he was given uh, the opportunity to serve as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. He resigned from that position at the end of the war for independence. So, so people understood that George Washington, when you gave him power, he was going to give it back. For someone to actively seek power, well, that was a whole new ballgame. So Jefferson is really kind of caught between those two eras. And, and, and there are other factors at play that I think make politics in the 1790s, in the first decades of the 19th century, may be especially contentious. One is that when the Constitution was written, nobody envisioned that there would be a two-party system. And indeed, you might say that in the 1790s, there were, or there there would emerge, two parties. um, The Jeffersonian Republicans on the one hand, Jefferson and Madison, um, and, and their allies. And then the Federalists on the other, Hamilton and Adams, and if you had to place them in one, George Washington. And, and, you know, these two parties may be congealed, but there wasn't a party system. There was nothing systematic about it. This was political improv. Um, These people were making things up as they proceeded. And, And so the rules of engagement were very much up in the air. And and I think that added to the sense of of stress and even crisis as this nation was more and more divided over issues and ideology um, as the 1790s progressed. In addition, um, you have the fact that the legitimacy of political parties is, is, is very much up in the air. I think it's fair to say that Jefferson and Madison, did not consider themselves to be partisans. They disclaimed the idea of partisanship. As far as they were concerned, they weren't partisans at all. They were Americans, standing up for the ideals of 76, in opposition to the party. The partisans were the Federalists, who who were counter-revolutionaries. That's the Jeffersonian view. The Federalists, of course, had a different view. They didn't consider themselves to be Partisans, They thought the Jeffersonian Republicans were a faction that was opposing government under George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. And, and, and so this is really uh, an interesting time. And uh, when we think about Jefferson's elections, we, we normally think of Jefferson facing off against John Adams. Um, John Adams, of course, um, would be Jefferson's opponent. The man, I don't want to even say that Jefferson ran against Adams. You didn't run for office in 1796. People advanced your name as a candidate for office, and you kind of stood back and let other people do the campaigning for you. But Jefferson and and Adams, their names were advanced in opposition uh, to to one another in 1796. And we know, spoiler alert here, we know the outcome. (laughs) Adams won, and Jefferson came in second. And Jefferson would, in the rules uh, under the constitution before the 12th amendment, Jefferson would serve as John Adams's vice president. Not really a part of his um, administration, very much a part from his administration, but Jefferson would be the vice president. There'd be a rematch in 1800. This time, Jefferson wins. And the election of 1800, in, in some ways, is the most heated political contest in American history. Uh, People nowadays talk about how, um, you know, combative politics are, how divided America is. Um, And from the standpoint of 1800, politics were, were brutal. Politics had been dumbed down. Politics could not be possibly more divisive. Politics could not possibly seem more... Vulgar. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe what comes around goes around. Um, although it's probably fair to say that, that modern-day office seekers are maybe not on the same level of statesmanship as Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And, and that, in part, is because of the times in which these men emerged as leading American figures. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams... Uh, were, were people who um, were in many respects perfectly uh, conditioned to be statesmen. They were broadly and well educated. Um, they had some practical life experiences. They also um, had read and learned and practiced the law. They also um, had engaged in government um, on, on the local or the colonial level, we have John Adams and Thomas Jefferson arriving in Philadelphia at the Continental Congress and and quickly becoming allies in the cause of independence. It's oftentimes said that Jefferson is the pen of independence. Um, I guess that would make John Adams the mouth of independence. John Adams, uh, as he recalls it, um, pressed upon Jefferson once the two of them ended up on the committee of five. Um, there was Ben Franklin, Roger Sherman, Robert Livingston, um, Adams, and Jefferson. Um, the committee of five people that had been tasked with writing a Declaration of Independence. Um, Jefferson thought that Adams should do it. Adams had been so vigorously advocating the cause for months. But Adams turned to Jefferson. He said, oh, no. No, you have to do it. You have to write the Declaration. And Jefferson said, why? And Adams said, I give you three reasons. Reason number one. You are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to be at the head of this business. In other words, Adams understood that the war for independence had begun in Massachusetts. Massachusetts had been the place targeted by the British in the Coercive Acts. It's Boston that had been occupied by British troops. It's Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill that had seen the spilling of the blood of men from New England. Their loyalty to this cause was not in question. But Jefferson, a Virginian, had helped to draw in support from the colonies of of the Middle Atlantic and the South. Virginia, the most populous colony, right, was in many respects the most important one to this this united cause. And Jefferson, Adams thought, would unite members of the Continental Congress together in support of independence. The other reason that, that Adams gave was you can write 10 times better than I can. And then finally, Adams said, I, John Adams, am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular, but you are very much otherwise. And uh, I, I, I think Adams might have been on to something. He had been obnoxiously advocating the cause of independence, it's all he talked about. And uh, I, I think that the argument got a fresh hearing when people in the Continental Congress understood that it had come from the pen of Thomas Jefferson. So Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Um, After independence was secured, the men had uh, parallel lives um, in many respects. Jefferson went back to Virginia, helped reform the laws of Virginia, served as governor of Virginia. Adams went to Massachusetts, helped to write the Constitution of Massachusetts. Both men served as diplomatic understudies to Benjamin Franklin in, in France. When when the revolution ended, when Franklin went back to America, Jefferson was elevated to serve as our ambassador to France. Adams, meanwhile, became our first ambassador to England. When the uh, Constitution was was being uh, hammered out in Philadelphia, Adams and Jefferson were both away in Europe, and uh, and they were still very close. They were still good friends. They would travel around together. Um, We know, for example that uh, Adams and, and Jefferson, uh, and you can sort of picture them with their backpacks, staying in youth hostels, maybe with a Eurail pass. Anyway, they go to Stratford-on-Avon. And even back then, uh, William Shakespeare's house is a tourist attraction. So they, they enter the bard's house, they pay however many shillings, you know, is necessary to gain admission, and they walk into his study, and they're the only people in the room. And Jefferson goes up to, uh, he goes up to William Shakespeare's desk, and uh, he sees by his desk his wooden chair, and Jefferson reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a penknife, and he goes up to the chair, and he whittles away a little chunk of wood, and he sticks that piece of wood in his pocket, and then he whittles away another chunk of wood, and he hands it to John Adams. (laughs) B-F-F, right? Best friends forever, nothing could separate these men. Except politics. Except politics. Because when the Constitution's ratified, when Adams becomes George Washington's vice president, when Jefferson becomes the secretary of state, when it comes time to figure out exactly what this means, how the Constitution should be interpreted, that's when you see their friendship start to fray. And that's when you see this divide between the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Federalists of, of Hamiltonian as well as Adamsonian uh, persuasions develop. That's, that's when their relationship um, really begins to sour. Jefferson uh, is going to find that he has a new nemesis, all right? And that man is uh, none other. I don't know what is, is happening. Oh, here it is. This thing is it's really confounding me. Uh, by the way, Uh, The title of my book is Confounding Father. I'm not sure if I mentioned that to you or not. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, it was Hamilton who would be Thomas Jefferson's new nemesis, in part because Alexander Hamilton, as the Secretary of Treasury, had proposed a series of, of measures that Jefferson and his good friend, James Madison, viewed as unconstitutional. There, there was their plan for funding and assumption. The idea was that the national government would assume the Revolutionary War debts of the states. There was also a proposal for a national bank. and and you know, Madison, who unlike Jefferson, was at the Constitutional Convention. Madison, who was regarded by many back then even as the father of the Constitution. Madison said, we discussed the possibility of a national bank. We we discussed it and we decided that we weren't going to explicitly authorize it. And yet now Hamilton said that you could read between the lines of the Constitution and determine that this bank was necessary and proper to help carry out Congress's powers. Uh, the, The response that Hamilton received from Jefferson and Madison. The opposition that he saw develop to his plans and to his programs caused him to see Jefferson and Madison as his arch enemies. And as Jefferson emerged as the sort of universally understood leader of the Republican faction, it was Thomas Jefferson whom Alexander Hamilton would target for abuse. We all have our own picture of Thomas Jefferson. Alexander Hamilton had his own special picture of Thomas Jefferson, right? The Jefferson that Hamilton portrayed was, in many respects, un-American. The Jefferson who Hamilton portrayed was someone who had more loyalty to the French Revolution than the American Revolution, the Hamilton um, version of Jefferson, was was a demagogue. The Hamilton version of Thomas Jefferson was a dangerous radical who approved of the French Revolution, not only in in the beginning, but, but even as it continued to unfold. Hamilton's view of Thomas Jefferson was someone who was radical, someone who was dangerously irreligious, someone who was irresponsible, Someone who could not be trusted with the reins of government. Someone who was, a word that had perhaps more sting for Hamilton's audience than it does for this one, someone who was an anarchist. Right? And, uh, and Jefferson is portrayed that way, not only in, in newspaper columns that ha- Hamilton would write under various pseudonyms and that he would encourage others to write under their own pseudonyms. It's interesting. Too, by the way, um, the culture of print. Um, Frequently, political writing, um, when it was published, was published anonymously, or it was published under a pseudonym. And this reflects the sort of enlightened and enlightenment notion that what we should focus on, and what really establishes the authority of an argument, it's not the identity of the author. Right? It's, it's, it's the compellingness and the logical uh, integrity of the argument. And indeed, if someone were to attach their name to a piece of political writing, you would have to wonder, you know, are they trying to advance the cause or instead are they really trying to advance themselves? In in this cartoon, Thomas Jefferson is is depicted literally standing on this soapbox, standing on a platform uh, above this this motley, uh, you know, throng of of people. Some are identifiable. Looking through the the telescope is David Rittenhouse, um, a Jeffersonian. Um, On the very far right, in the top row, the African-American man, very caricatured in this depiction. Um, is a man who was an African-American member of the Philadelphia Democratic-Republican Society. The Democratic-Republican Societies were were groups, clubs that emerged in the early 1790s in opposition to Hamiltonian policies. They saw themselves really as kind of reenactors of the American Revolution, as the modern day version of the Sons of Liberty who coordinated resistance to British rule. Um, in the imperial crisis of the 1760s and 1770s. That the Philadelphia Democratic-Republican society would have an African-American member was was a a, a fact that brought great derision from their Federalist opponents. He's he's mocked as Citizen Sambo, and here he's made to say, our turn next, N-E-X. The idea is if, if this mob of mostly white people could gain the upper hand, just imagine what would follow. And who's cheering them on? Who's cheering them on but the figure on the lower left? The devil himself. So, I mean, in no uncertain terms, this is a, a very you know, uh, negative portrayal of Thomas Jefferson and the Republicans whom he had become associated with. Here, Jefferson is portrayed as being in league with the devil. Here, Jefferson is portrayed as the devil himself. This is Jefferson, the devil, with the horns and the tail. He's assisting Tom Paine as Tom Paine attempts to pull down the pillar of the federal government that is being erected under the administration of George Washington and John Adams. The the connection between Jefferson and Tom Paine is a useful one for Federalists to exploit, in part because one of the things that happens early on during the course of Washington's administration is uh, Tom Paine, who had been sort of a hero in the American Revolution because he wrote Common Sense. Well, Tom Paine, you know how there are these people uh, who are storm chasers? You know, like in the Midwest, people will get in vans and they'll follow around tornadoes and stuff and videotape them. Well, Tom Paine is kind of like that. He's a revolution chaser, you know? And, uh, you know, the revolution being complete now in the United States, he goes to France when the French Revolution begins. And uh, just as he wrote Common Sense for the American Revolution, for the French Revolution, he writes a number of different um, tracks, including uh, The Rights of Man. And the Rights of Man is significantly more radical, I think it's fair to say, than common sense, and uh, it is has been copied already. I'm sorry, it has been published already in Europe. Um, Jefferson receives from James Madison a copy of the Rights of Man, and he is asked after he reads it by Madison to uh, to pass along this copy to an American printer who's going to print the American version. So Jefferson reads Rights of Man. He thinks that it's actually a nice response in many respects, it works as a nice response, to a, uh, a uh, tract that had been written recently and published by John Adams, called Discourses on Davila. And uh, Jefferson, in sort of a little cover note to explain how he had come in position, possession of this copy, um, and to take a little bit of dryness off the note, he, he wrote to the, the publisher you know, that he was glad that the standard of common sense is, is going to be erected in opposition to the heresies that have sprung up amongst us. Well, Jefferson claims that he never intended for, for this to be published. But what does the publisher do? He blurbs Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson's endorsement of the rights of man and his apparent slam of Adams's book ends up on the cover page of the American edition of the Rights of Man. So Jefferson and Tom Paine now are, are linked together. And all of the excesses of Tom Paine, um, all of, of, of Tom Paine's uh, words are gonna be used against Thomas Jefferson. Tom Paine, um, after the, the rights of man, is gonna publish The Age of Reason. Uh, in The Age of Reason, Tom Paine uh, go, goes uh, you know, out on a limb in opposition to organized religion. Um, He says his own mind is the only church he ever really believed in. Um, And these words are used against Thomas Jefferson, who's here seen, you know, helping Tom Paine pull down the pillar of the federal government. So Jefferson is Satan. Um, He's uh, helping uh, the atheist Tom Paine, and he's opposed by who? By what? The American eagle with laser beam breath. Um, and, uh, And, you know, we're left on our the edge of our seats. We don't know exactly what is going to happen next. And, uh, and, and, and that's the case for a lot of Americans. I mean, there's this real sense of urgency, this real sense that this American revolution for which so many had fought, for which so many had died, you know, uh, so many lives, so much of, 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 of people's collective fortunes had been lost in this struggle, this uncertain struggle for liberty against the British all of it seemed at stake. All of it seemed to hang in the balance. If you were a Jeffersonian Republican, you thought that the British represented this crypto-monarchical faction that, that were counter-revolutionaries, that wanted to turn back the clock. If you were a Federalist, you thought that Jefferson and Madison were French revolutionaries, that, that they wished to, to instill in America Uh, a a revolutionary regime that would unleash here a reign of terror. Jefferson was described as being French. Jefferson was described as being un-American. Well, what's the best response to that? Especially as we approach the election of 1796. Especially as it becomes increasingly clear that the two candidates put forth for office are going to be Thomas Jefferson, Republican, and John Adams, Federalist. Um, after George Washington announces that he's going to step down after two terms? What's the best thing that you could do to establish Jefferson's um, chops as an authentic American? Any, any facts about him that we know? We know something that people back then didn't know. We know that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. You know, In 1776, there was really no reason for the public to know that fact, especially given the revolutionary print culture that... that, that said that anonymous writing was the norm, that people would publish under pseudonyms, or that certain political documents were really corporate ones, like the Declaration of Independence, which spoke for the the Continental Congress. Yeah, Jefferson is associated with the Declaration of Independence. Americans are told Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. I mean, what better retort to the charge that Jefferson is un-American? You say he's un-American? Really? Jefferson invented America. Jefferson wrote the birth certificate of America. So the Republicans, the Jeffersonian Republicans, developed a very different image of Thomas Jefferson than that of the Federalists, a mirror image of Thomas Jefferson. If if the Federalists portray Jefferson as a French revolutionary, the Federalists see Jefferson, uh, the Republicans see Jefferson as, as one of the greatest American revolutionaries. If Jefferson is is portrayed as being radical by the Federalists, the Republicans portray the Federalists as radical betrayers of the American Revolution. And Jefferson, a spokesman for the spirit of 76. The Federalists oftentimes portray Thomas Jefferson as this demagogue, as as a man who lowers himself to the multitude. Jeffersonian Republicans portray him as someone who stands up straight like a good American citizen should, who sees himself as above no one, who sees himself as beneath no one, just like a good American citizen should see himself. And, and, and so this mirror image of Thomas Jefferson is going to figure prominently in the election of 1796 and the outcome as we've discussed, is a very close election. (coughs) The uh, states are gonna divide largely along regional lines. Adams and the Federalists have a great deal of strength in New England. Jefferson and the Republicans have the basis of their strength in the American South. It's, It's in the middle states that the battle is perhaps the hottest. Pennsylvania then, as now, is a swing state Jefferson's uh, uh, John Beckley, his his great uh, campaign manager, wants to make sure that when people go to vote, they know which elector to vote for. And he didn't want to trust word of mouth. Um, So what he did is he printed ballots with the names of the Jeffersonian Republican electors. So people would already have that ready to go and put into the ballot box. In part, uh, as a result, Pennsylvania went for Thomas Jefferson. Meanwhile, New York is the other swing state. It goes for John Adams. The result is an incredibly close election, 71 electoral votes for Adams, 68 for Thomas Jefferson. Um, Jefferson is going to be the vice president since he came in second. A lot of people, a lot of people hoped um, that this boded well for the future of American government. A lot of people hoped that this would bring about conciliation between Adams and Jefferson, two men for for whom they had actually a great deal of respect, two men they recognized as true, um, authentic patriots of the American Revolution. And early on, it seems as if Jefferson and Adams also harbored hopes for some sort of reconciliation. But it wasn't in the cards. Events uh, would, would cause partisanship to increase even more. Um, among them, there is a treaty that was negotiated by the statesman John Jay. The Jay Treaty would be exceptionally controversial. The Jay Treaty was a treaty designed to um, ease hostilities with Great Britain. The Jay Treaty brought about Um, a settlement to a number of disputes that still lingered after the American Revolution, the Jay Treaty was seen by Federalists as a pretty good deal for America. It was seen by Republicans very differently, In in part because the Jay Treaty seemed to signal a new alliance with Great Britain, one that conflicted and overturned and repealed the 1777 alliance that we had with France, during the American Revolution. That French alliance had never expired. It had never been repudiated. Hamilton and others argued that that alliance was with King Louis, but now that Louis was gone, that that alliance was null and void. Jefferson and Madison argued that no, that alliance was with the people of France and that it was still in effect. It's an interesting question in part because it suggests something about the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Federalists that I think is worth understanding. Oftentimes, Jefferson is portrayed by the Federalists as a Francophile, as someone who has this this weird devotion to all things French. And oftentimes, the Federalists are portrayed by the Republicans as Anglophiles, as monarchical counter-revolutionaries who would love to see us you know, become colonies once again. I think both of those negative portrayals are fundamentally misguided. I think it's more fair to say that the Jeffersonian Republicans, it's not that they had a great affinity for France. It's that they had a great antipathy toward Great Britain. The Federalists, it's not that they had a great affinity for Britain. It's that they had a great antipathy for France. The Jeffersonian Republicans, Um, saw Great Britain as what they had fought to declare and win their independence from, and they wanted to make sure that that independence would would endure. The Federalists saw France as, as this nightmarish version of what America might become if the principles of the American Revolution were allowed to run wild and morph into the dangerous principles of the French Revolution. The Jay Treaty and the debate over it is something that, that deeply divided Americans. Now, by this point, Thomas Jefferson has resigned as our Secretary of State. By this point, he is back at Monticello in retirement, permanent retirement, he tells people in his letters. He says that he cares only about the fruits and vegetables in his garden. He cares only about the books, the works of philosophy he gets to read. He says he takes no newspapers. Um, and yet, somehow, when people write to him and ask his opinions on politics, he's able to send them very well-informed responses. One uh, newsy letter is one that he writes to uh, a friend named Philip Mizay. Now, Philip Mazzeh uh, had been a uh, neighbor of Jefferson's in Albemarle County, Virginia. Maze uh, had been born in Italy. He returned to Italy and asked Jefferson to look after his farm. So periodically, Jefferson would write to Mazzei, um, you know, letters giving him updates on his crops and how things were going and, you know, financial information, things of that sort. Well, in, in one letter, um, again, to take the dryness off the note, Jefferson had written that it would give uh, Mazzei a fever were he to see how men who were once Samsons in the field and Solomon's in the council had had their head shorn by the harlot England. Now, those of you who know your Bible get what Jefferson is saying. What man had been a Samson in the field and a Solomon in the council? George Washington. And when Samson had his head shorn by Delilah, when she cut his hair, he lost all of his strength. He lost all of his power. In other words, Washington had, had given into to the, the charms of Great Britain. Washington had lost his, his revolutionary zeal. Washington, by signing the Jay Treaty, had become one of the bad guys. Well, this letter, amazingly, was received by Mizeh, and then published by him. He sent it to a newspaper. It ended up in a French newspaper. It kept going through different translations. It ended up from the French newspaper, a British newspaper picked it up, translated it back into English. Um, Jefferson had had, uh, spoken about how um, there were people in America who had adopted the forms of British government. What he meant was, there were people in American government who were, who were aping British court society. You know, when you went to visit George Washington in Philadelphia, you know, the second national capital, uh, there would be a levy every week, a party, a celebration. You would walk into the president's house. You would be presented to George Washington. You would bow at the waist. George Washington would bow back. And then there was a little reception. It was monarchical, Jefferson and other Republicans believed. And, and he's mentioning this, referring to this in his letter to Mizeh. Well, when that letter was translated, first from English to Italian, then to French, then back to English, it was garbled. And Jefferson's um, description of how uh, people in America had adopted the forms of British government, they dropped the S. Jefferson was made to say that, they, that Americans had adopted the form of British government. So now it appeared as if Jefferson was coming out against the Constitution. Politics got even more heated under the administration of of John Adams. There was the quasi war with France and Jefferson was associated with France. What a terrible and politically precarious situation to be in. In the run up to the election of 1800, which everyone knew would be a rematch. You have the appearance of this cartoon. In this cartoon, Thomas Jefferson is portrayed trying to sacrifice the Constitution of the United States on the altar to Gallic despotism, the altar of French despotism. He is letting slip from his right hand his letter to Mize. Right, This is the letter that, that proves all of Jefferson's radical sentiments as far as Federalists are concerned. Here, the Constitution is being saved from Jefferson's evil doings by the federal eagle guided by the eye of God. And who is on Jefferson's side? Once again, the devil, the devil himself. In December of 1799, uh, an important death is going to shape the political landscape. George Washington passes away at Mount Vernon. Now, John Adams was a very controversial president, he was controversial in part because of the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts, which were passed under his administration um, in uh, response to the quasi-war with France. There were some Federalists who were calling for war. Adams didn't think that war would be beneficial for the United States. He worried that if we went to war with France, we might be thrown into an alliance that would compromise our independence from England. He worried that if we lost a war with France, we might see that our independence was compromised to France. He worried that we would lose lives, that we would lose fortunes. He worried also um, that, that America would, would cease to be the nation that it was designed to be, that this war would be an engine of tyranny. And, and yet, the only bone that he had to throw to the kind of rabid Federalist dog was a package of legislation that in part, I think, is clearly unconstitutional. The Alien and Sedition Acts, right? The Sedition Act, you know, just just seven years after the First Amendment's ratification, which begins with the words, Congress shall make no law. Well, what does Congress do? It makes a law restricting and abridging free speech. And it became a criminal act to criticize the president or Congress, and the federal government. And, and, and so John Adams is, uh, is, is held up in real distri- repute by Jeffersonian Republicans. Um, a lot of Federalists think that Adams hasn't gone far enough, that he's wobbly, that he's a Fino, a Federalist, a name only, right? <laughs> and they don't want to hold him up and and run a positive re-election campaign for him. They want to have a negative campaign against Thomas Jefferson. And and what better way to distract from the fact that the choice is, is Jefferson versus Adams than trying to make this election seem like a choice between Jefferson and George Washington, right? The fallen founder. America mourned him like they had mourned no figure before. And here he is, right? The cartoon says, look, on this picture and on this, right? Here is George Washington, who despite his recent death, looks, you know, fresher than ever. And, and he rests on the foundation of order, law, and religion. And then here is Thomas Jefferson, who looks like a Carney who has just woken up on someone else's front lawn, surrounded by tall boys and empty 40s. And, and he's on a foundation of, of, of radical philosophical tracts by Voltaire and Condorcet and Tom Paine. We have uh, beneath Jefferson the serpent and, 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 and this alligator. We have, and here the Federalists give away a little bit too much. Um, at the side of George Washington, you have the, the Federal Eagle as well as the British lion, whoops, um, <laughs> over, over Jefferson's head. You see this snuffed-out lamp, yet over Washington's head, you have this, this radiant laurel wreath. What a contrast. That's what the Federalists wanted the election to be about. Um, fortunately for, uh, for the Jeffersonian Republicans, um, it was about, to the greatest degree that they could make it, John Adams's record as President of the United States. Um, The Federalists had always been accused of the Jeffersonian Republicans of playing fast and loose with the Constitution. You, You could argue about whether the National Bank was a legitimate example of that. It seemed unambiguous that the sedition law was an example of that. The Jeffersonian Republicans who since the early 1790s said that the Federalists had been conspiring to take away our liberties that they had been conspiring to impose upon us tyranny, that they had been contriving as counter-revolutionaries in opposition to the spirit of 1776. Those dire warnings, those prophecies, increasingly seemed fulfilled. And as a result, John Adams is not the winner of the election of 1800. Jefferson and Aaron Burr, are the winners of the election of 1800. Aaron Burr, Jefferson's New York running mate. Aaron Burr, whose presence helps to swing New York to the Jeffersonian Republican column. Everybody is getting um, better and better and upping their game as political athletes. You see that Pennsylvania is split eight to seven. Well, for, for a brief period, the Federalists had gained control over the government of Pennsylvania. They knew that Pennsylvania would probably see a Republican majority. So they they switched from being a winner-take-all state to one that proportionally awarded their electoral votes to deny the Jeffersonian Republicans the, the full 15 electoral votes that otherwise they would have received. You see New York swing over into the Republican column, and you see a great deal of discipline on the part of Jeffersonian Republican electors. Burr, of course, had been Jefferson's running mate earlier in 1796. The idea was that everybody, uh, every elector, had two electoral votes to cast. Um, And and it was designed that way, in part because the people who framed the Constitution worried that really people would just vote for their favorite son. They'd vote for, for some prominent person from their state, um, and that local prejudices would prevent them from voting for any candidate for president from another state. So the framers of the Constitution mandated um, that every elector got two votes, and one vote had to be cast for someone from a different state. And their assumption was that from among those out-of-state votes, there would emerge a list of a few people truly of national character, who would then be considered by the House of Representatives, which would vote as state delegations to select the next president. That was thought to be the way things would normally work out. But that, of course, predates any thought of national partisanship. Now we have a bunch of Republican electors all voting as they are supposed to, all voting both for Jefferson and for Burr, every single one of them. And the result was a tie, right? If one had thrown away his vote, voted for you know, Martha Washington or Mickey Mouse or whomever, right, this this tie would have been avoided. But because there was a tie, this election now was going to be decided by the House of Representatives, the lame duck House of Representatives that had been elected in 1798 at the height of the quasi-war with France, a House of Representatives that was still controlled by the Federalists who saw Thomas Jefferson as their arch enemy. I mean, for years, Jefferson had been excoriated by the federal press. For years, Jefferson had been held up as a radical, as as someone who was un-American. It only made sense that most Federalist members of Congress thought that if the choice was between Jefferson and Burr, that Burr was a lesser of two evils. That Aaron Burr is the man who they should try to elect, That Aaron Burr was someone who they could influence. That Aaron Burr would be beholden to them. That Aaron Burr would would act in partnership with the Federalists. Alexander Hamilton disagreed. I mean, I I love history in part because sometimes you get these almost unbelievable movie quality endings, right? I didn't mean to end that. I don't know what keeps happening with this. Um, Here's Alexander Hamilton. He still has influence over the House of Representatives. He begins a letter-writing campaign. One person who he targets in particular is the, the sole congressman from Delaware. He is a delegation of one. He gets to decide how Delaware is going to vote. His name is James Baird. Hamilton writes to him and he says, don't make the mistake of voting for Burr, right? Aaron Burr is bad news. It's true, Hamilton wrote, that Thomas Jefferson is sometimes not faithful to the truth. It's true that Thomas Jefferson has principles with which we disagree, but Aaron Burr has no principles whatsoever. And if we vote for him, we will be held responsible for him. If instead we acquiesce to the election of Thomas Jefferson, our party will remain without stain. And, And that is what James Barrett and other Federalists will do Um, It's as a result of Hamilton's intercession that Jefferson is elected president of the United States. Jefferson um, is going to be inaugurated on uh, March 4th, 1801. And as he stands um, in the chamber of the House of Representatives to address uh, the people assembled, as well as through the newspapers, all of the people throughout the United States, he tries to give an address that's conciliatory, Um, but also one that, that lays out his principles. And think about it, this is the first time that Jefferson has been allowed to speak for himself. You couldn't speak for yourself as a person being advanced for office back then. You couldn't display any desire for office. But now Jefferson gets to describe himself. He gets to describe his own principles. He gets to describe the substantial advantages that America enjoys as a nation. And he asked the crowd, rhetorically, What remains to close the circle of our felicities? And then he turns to them and he says, one thing more. A wise and frugal government, which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This, Thomas Jefferson said, is the sum of good government. And you see, this is a very Lockean statement. What's the the purpose of government? To restrain men from injuring one another. That's it. Everything else on here is what government shouldn't do. Well, how well does Jefferson uh, succeed at carrying forth his vision into reality? I I think it's fair to say that his, his record is mixed, but that he does his best. You know, one of the things that's interesting about members of the founding generation is it's not that they ever truly abandon their principles. It's that you get to see them grappling with a situation that we oftentimes find ourselves grappling with in the real world. Sometimes our principles come into conflict, right? I mean, Jefferson has, in many respects, a very successful administration. He's good at keeping his promises. Um, He repeals all internal taxes, for example. And yet, while he's able to repeal all internal taxes, he also tightens the belt of the national government. He lays off not only tax collectors, but other federal officials. During the course of Jefferson's two terms, he is able to pay down one-third of the national debt. That is a big and significant chunk. And so Jefferson succeeds at at bringing about uh, with economy in, in government. Jefferson is somebody who reforms the way the new capital, Washington, D.C., is going to operate. No longer do you have those monarchical uh, forms of British government. No longer do you have the, the levies. No longer do you have the courtly bows. Jefferson institutes the handshake as a way that people will greet themselves in Washington, D.C., and g- greet each other is what I mean to say. Um, Jefferson, um, instead of having tables with seating assignments, at what would become the White House, you know, that expressed rank and had a high end and a low end. The tables are now round, and people will seat themselves. He brings this new, less aristocratic, more small-D democratic spirit to the national capital. He, he is, uh, you know, beloved by people throughout the United States, especially people who see themselves as up-and-comers, people who see themselves as, as those who had been pushed down by the powerful. One group is a group of uh, Baptists who live in Cheshire, Massachusetts, who had long endured the boot of of Congregationalists who were dominant within that state. Um, They sent to Jefferson a mammoth cheese. And if you go to Cheshire, Massachusetts, you can see this monument to the mammoth cheese. It is a monument that depicts the press that that created the mammoth cheese, this 2,000-pound cheese (laughs) made with the milk of 200 Republican cows, that's how they were described, (laughs) that was put on a sled and and carried to the Hudson River, where it was put on a barge and brought to New York, where it was put on a sloop and sailed to Baltimore, where it was put on a specially built wagon festooned with red, white, and blue bunting and delivered to Washington, D.C. and Thomas Jefferson on New Year's Day 1802. And the cheese was inscribed in many ways with praise that was also um, perhaps warning. Because John Leland, the man who delivered the cheese, the Baptist preacher, um, gave a sermon which essentially said, we adore Jefferson because we adore his principles. But if he ever drops his principles, we will drop him like a brick. said it in much more polite terms, but that's what he said. And inscribed around the cheese, around the perimeter, was Jefferson's personal motto, rebellion against tyrants. Is obedience to God. So Jefferson is uh, really kind of riding high. He has a lot of popular support. Uh, One bump in his administration, um, which he handles in an interesting way, is uh, something that appears on September 2nd, 1802. It is a charge in the Richmond recorder that it is well known that the man whom it delighteth the people to honor, keeps and for many years has kept as his concubine one of his own slaves... Her name is Sally. The Sally Hemings story is introduced, and Jefferson is subjected to much derision and mockery. Um, Jefferson is accused, it's important to note, not so much of, of, of loving a woman of African descent. Instead, he's accused of, of transgressing racial lines, of lowering himself by having a relationship with a woman who isn't white. Now, I know that time is short, but it's probably worth mentioning that, that it's probably a true accusation that was levied by this newspaper writer, James Thompson Callender. Calendar, Calendar uh, had been right before he exposed a scandal of, of Alexander Hamilton's. Um, he was right oftentimes in the essence of his charges, if not the exact details. And that seems to be the, uh, the situation here. Um, there are a number of reasons why we think that Jefferson did, in fact, have a long-term, seemingly monogamous relationship after the death of his wife with Sally Hemings, who was his late wife's half-sister. All right, so Sally Hemings was the daughter of Jefferson's father-in-law. And her mother, who had been a slave owned by Jefferson's father-in-law, was her- herself half-white. So Sally Hemings was about three-quarters white, probably resembled Thomas Jefferson's late wife, he had promised his late wife on her deathbed that he would never remarry. And here's Sally Hemings, whom he can never legally marry. But Sally Hemings, who had been with him to France, Sally Hemings, who was, unlike almost every woman in America, bilingual, Sally Hemings, who was remarkably cosmopolitan, Sally Hemings, who, when she lived in France, was at least legally free. Here's Sally Hemings, uh, this woman who only conceives children when Jefferson is present at Monticello. And note that Jefferson is often not present at Monticello. Here's Sally Hemings, who herself told her children that Jefferson was their father. Here is Sally Hemings, um, who has descendants who took a DNA test, and their DNA, um, a certain genetic marker, um, was compared to that of known Jefferson descendants. And there was a match. So it's not a 100% slam dunk, but I say it's about a 98%, maybe 99% when you consider the existence of this photograph. <laughs> but Jefferson's response, right, to the Sally Heming story uh, was, was utter silence. Um, he rushed back to Washington, D.C. He brought his daughters with him. He uh, oftentimes would, som- well, he sometimes would miss church. But after the Sally Hemings story, he never missed church, and he always went with his daughters. Um, and their presence in the society of Washington, D.C., kind of put a, a it sort of quashed the spreading of these rumors. If they were there, you know, people couldn't talk about this around them. And, and the story went away. Uh, Jefferson won great acclaim for the Louisiana Purchase. Um, the Louisiana Purchase had a lot speaking for it. Um, Madison, Jefferson's secretary of state, Uh, was one of the the great champions of the purchase, which had been negotiated by Robert Livingston and James Monroe. Um, Napoleon, who had lost uh, Haiti um, to the enslaved people's uprising there, now really had no great use for Louisiana. He thought it would be a breadbasket for for the workforce of, of Haiti where the acreage was really too valuable growing sugar cane to be set aside for the cultivation of wheat or corn, um, he now needed money, and he sold this to the United States for 15 million bucks. Jefferson was was greeted with news of this treaty on July 4th, 1803. And uh, in some ways, this is a dream come true, in part because, you know, whoever possessed this land, Jefferson wrote, would be our, our permanent and habitual enemy. If France possessed this land, Jefferson wrote, we would have to marry ourselves to the British fleet. Jefferson's saying this. But if we possess this land, it's like a land moat in the West. It serves the same function as the Atlantic Ocean. It insulates us from the wars and the troubles and the problems of Europe. And, and, and preventing war, I mean, that is a noble and important thing. It's, gosh, it's get me, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's James Madison who writes that of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. Right, it plants the seeds of standing armies and debts and taxes and infringements of our civil liberties. And there was another reason too why Louisiana was seen as valuable by Thomas Jefferson. Remember how America's population kept doubling every 20 years? How could we remain a nation of virtuous farmers? And our, and our population doubling every 20 years if we don't get more land, right? If we don't get more land, then we are bound to the cycle of history, where we go from the state of nature, right, and, and the agrarian phase to, the, to, to empire. And, and what does that lead to? That leads straight to destruction. If we add Louisiana, however, Jefferson wrote once, we will have land to farm for 100 generations as he wrote another time, perhaps after drinking a little bit too much wine, we will have land to farm for a thousand generations. In other words, we can, instead of developing through time, America could freeze itself in time by expanding across space. What, What an amazing and alluring prospect for Thomas Jefferson. And yet there is a problem, a clear problem. The Constitution doesn't explicitly authorize the national government to add new territory. And that's not a trivial thing. You know, I've I've, I've been married now for uh, 14 years. If I went back to the hotel at the end of the night, what if I walked into the room and my wife was there and she had a big smile on herself and and, uh, on on her face and she said, honey, I have great news for you. And I said, what is it? And she said, meet our new husband, Steve. (laughs) I mean, in many respects, the Constitution had been a, a marriage between North and South. But if you were to add Louisiana, it suddenly becomes this weird menage a trois with the West. And how is that going to affect the balance of power? Will the West be more like the North? Or will it be more like the South? Will the future residents of Kansas be cod fishermen, like the people of Massachusetts? Or will they be farmers like the people of Virginia? I mean, these questions are weighing on Thomas Jefferson. He wants to do the right thing. He comes up with a a, a proposed constitutional amendment that explicitly would authorize the purchase of Louisiana. But like a cartoon devil, Madison appears on his shoulder. And Madison says, don't do it! Because if you do, maybe the French will back out of the deal. If you do, maybe the Louisiana Purchase Treaty will, will, will you know, expire before this amendment gets ratified. If you do, maybe this amendment won't get ratified and explicitly the states will have rejected it allow the Senate to approve the treaty, allow the House of Representatives to fund it, and then sign it. Just do it. And Jefferson does. And, and I think this is a classic example of Jefferson having to choose between principles that were in conflict. On the one hand, is fidelity to the Constitution. On the other hand is this ability, he thought, to avoid war and, and preserve America as, as this nation of farmers. You may think that Jefferson made the wrong decision. You may think that he made the right decision. But I think we all could agree he made a difficult decision, and it was a principled one. He consulted his principles. He weighed his principles. He made his decision. Well, and Jefferson's uh, decision is going to be rewarded very much in the election of 1804. Um, oh, the Federalists who predicted gloom and doom and blood in the streets and a reign of terror if Jefferson got elected, his actions wonderfully repudiated those charges. In the election of 1804, Jefferson is, is put up against um, the former Federalist vice presidential candidate, now the presidential candidate, um, Charles Cotesworth Pinckney of South Carolina. And Jefferson wins the election of 1804 in a landslide. I mean, when you, when you think about presidential elections, it's rare when one is this decisive. Um, Connecticut and Delaware vote Federalist. But the rest of the nation, by and large, goes Republican. Even Massachusetts, the Federalist Death Star, votes for Thomas Jefferson. So this is a uh, resounding victory, um, and one that will put the Federalist Party really on the road to, distinction, to extinction or perhaps self-destruction. Um, during the uh, Hartford Convention during the War of 1812. Um, Years would pass before Jefferson and Adams would reconcile, but finally they did. They exchanged letters between one another. Um, They repaired their friendship. They talked about all the things that uh, people are not supposed to talk about in polite company. They talked about politics. They talked about religion. They talked about philosophy. They spoke about history. Um, And as they wrote to each other, I think they explained themselves to one another. They repaired their friendship. They uh, returned to their parallel lives. Jefferson, Jefferson, after a long and productive and useful life, uh, he was able to see his last wish come true, his last wish that he would survive until the 4th of July, 1826. Jefferson died 50 years to the hour after the ratification of the Declaration of Independence by the Continental Congress. Meanwhile, up in Massachusetts, John Adams is on his deathbed. He has no idea that Jefferson has just passed away. His his last words are, Thomas Jefferson survived. I'd like to think that at that moment, Thomas Jefferson was being lifted skyward on the wings of angels, laughing his butt off because, once again, he had proven John Adams wrong. (laughs) Although, in other respects, I suppose we could say that John Adams, metaphorically at least, was right, that Jefferson does survive. Um, that he survives here, I think, at this building in Washington, D.C., um, that he survives in, in, in many other respects, um, that the ideas of the American Revolution, the ideas of the Declaration of Independence still survive. So thank you very much. Robert MacDonald is author of the new book, Confounding Father, Thomas Jefferson's image in his own time. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.